Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates stories, the art of telling, and the journey of listening. With narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith friends. Episode 24 This week's featured story is from author Claire Fullerton. She joined me from her home in Malibu, with ocean waves crashing in her backyard, and her dogs, three shepherds, nearby. We talked about how writing is a very personal experience for her. And we began with Claire telling me the story about the first time she went to Como, Mississippi, where the novel Little T is set. As I was preparing for this this week, I read your acknowledgments. And you mention in your acknowledgments someone named Sledge Taylor of Como, Mississippi. And you said, thanks for a memorable day. That just piqued my curiosity a little bit. So can you elaborate on that? Would you talk a little bit about what that was about? It is the greatest story. All right. I will begin by saying in the deep South, when a man has two first names, as is the uh, case with Sledge Taylor, that you know one thing, and that is that he is connected to the land with a a familial uh, lineage Hmm. that means something, that anchors you to a region. And that's the case with Sledge Taylor. And Sledge Taylor is a gentleman farmer, I like to say, in that he is a scientist, an artist, a Hmm. botanist, and anything else with an IST at the end of it (laughs) is our Sledge Taylor. And when I started writing the story Little T, it didn't have a title. I had yet to uh, create the the character of Thelonia Winfrey. And I was speaking on the phone to a friend of mine in Memphis, and I was saying, I've started writing a book about female friendships, that I wanted to capture the way that women relate to each other, and especially how they speak to each other, when they have a long uh, and significant shared history, because it's the humor and it's the things that don't need to be said uh, that intrigue me when, when, yeah. when friends know each other so well that you can say half of what you mean and, and they understand exactly what's being said. And I, I love the idea of that. And I had said to my friend on the phone from Memphis that I wanted to partially set it in Memphis, but I also wanted the narrator to be from somewhere outside of Memphis. And so I just chose Como Mississippi. And at the time I had never been there. Mm. And my friend said, oh, you've got to meet Sledge Taylor. And I get there to Como, Mississippi. This whole region has a story and Sledge knew everything about it. So I meet him. We go to lunch at this diner on Main Street in Como. Then he puts me in his four door uh, Ford F1, whatever it was, and (laughs) drove me around for five and a half hours. And I'm saying to him, I need to be authentic about what I'm describing here. What kind of grass is that on the side of the road? Mm. Said, well, that's Johnson grass and that's sagebush. And he sees a turtle on the side of the road. And he says, that's the Eastern boxwood turtle. And 
when it crosses the road, we know it's going to rain. And then he drives me up this, this gravel path that goes endlessly into the beyond. And I see a lake at the left and I see a cabin before it. And the, and the gravel path turns and up from the mist rises a plantation built in 1780 whatever that is now somebody's private residence. It is their second home. A man materializes out of the woods. He's six foot three. He calls him Mr. Sledge. And he said, do you want to go in the house? And Sledge says, yes, we do. And he said, Claire, you can't photograph. I said, okay. (laughs) We go into this plantation house. It is rustic, comfortable, old world, convenient, chic, with 12 foot ceilings, a staircase in the middle of the foyer, a veranda on the first floor and the second floor. I'd say it was on about 240 acres of land. And Sledge Taylor knew everything there was to know about everything. We get back in the truck, car, whatever it was. We go to a church. And the stained glass windows are dedicated to Robert Taylor and Thelonious Sledge. It was the most uh, awesome five hours I've ever spent with anybody because he was very proud and very informed um, of, of the region who did what, who built what, who, you know, had a claim to what. It, it was it was fascinating. Yeah. It was breathtaking, gorgeous part of the country. Well, I just I just loved how you just described coming up onto this plantation and almost it being frozen in time there for you. What a gift as a writer to to physically be in a space like that. Um, yeah, it, it was awesome yeah. for me because, you know, I've been living in Southern California for the last 30 years, but I did grow up in the deep South that I'm, I, I consider myself a Southerner. I am from Memphis, Tennessee, as was my mother and, and, and her forebears before. And my, my father being from uh, the lake area of Minneapolis, Minnesota, in a place called Wyzetta. And so I can claim uh, ownership and citizenship to, to, to both places. And yet the South absolutely positively fascinates me because I came to it when I was 10 years old. So I never lost that, you know, outsider's vantage point, which, which spawns uh, a deep appreciation for the nuances because, you know, uh, one really pays attention mm-hmm. when they are in a new region from, from, you know, where they were born. And I never lost that with the South. And I do consider it the South, the last romantic region in America. And so to spend that kind of quality time uh, with Sledge Taylor while he was really telling me what there is to crow about Mm. in that part of the country. And I took all kinds of notes while I was with him and, you know, uh, managed to work in into the, the book of little T the things that I thought that were worth talking about that, that were, that were unique and specific. Yes. Yes. I think there are lots of beautiful specifics in your storytelling. You definitely practice the art of, then probably are just naturally gifted with this sort of lyricism in your writing. 
that's a good place to pause our conversation and listen to some of her lyrical writing style. This is the first scene in Como, Mississippi, set in the 1980s. This is where we first hear the title. This is Little T, written by Claire Fullerton. People aren't shy when they're born to this world. Shyness evolves in increments from cause and effect until it morphs into an ingrained personality trait, earned the hard way. It's a cornerstone of wariness from which one engages with the world. A hesitancy toward humanity that colors self-esteem. I was ten years old the first time I was judged as aloof, but it was the combined hand of fate and a matter of geography that contributed to this assumption. Not, I believe, the actual facts. In the summer of my tenth year, my family moved from Como, Mississippi, to Memphis, Tennessee, where my parents had grown up. Because I arrived in Memphis as an outsider, the cautious line I trod was necessarily intact. My father, John Tallinghist Wakefield, was a gentleman farmer who decided to accept a position with the Memphis Cotton Exchange because the high interest rates of the 1980s caused land value to plummet and commodity prices were low. Both of my brothers had embraced the move. Twelve-year-old Hayward was adventurous by nature, and John Jr., at 16, was already a social climber who danced with delight over the chance to ride on the coattails of my parents' social connections in the big city. My reaction to the move was complete despair. For the thing about being a Southern girl is they let you run loose until the time comes to shape you. My first decade on Earth had been spent idyllically on the plantation grounds of my family's ancestral property 45 miles south of Memphis, in the hill country, bordering the delta of Mississippi's Panola County. My father had been appointed custodian of the vast, fertile acreage of the Wakefield Plantation on Old Panola Road by his parents, who moved from Como to Memphis because they were tired of fooling with the upkeep of the white, six-pillared, anachronistic domicile built in 1884. Como is an agrarian region, whose mainstay is cotton, and although the small town has little to recommend it, the land that surrounds it is a child's wooded wonderland. My best friend was called Little T, though her real name was Thelonia, so named for her father, Thelonious Winfrey, who took charge of my family's cotton fields and plantation grounds. Little T and her parents lived in a six-room cottage beyond the fields, a pond stocked with bream and bass lay halfway between her house and mine. Many were the afternoons we fished with the poles Thelonious made, each with our name carved on its flexible handle and a cork on the line. Little T was my age exactly, and her mother, Elvida, helped my mother run the large, Greek Revival, hip-roofed house. The two women made such a synergistic show of the finer points of domestication that the spirit of any task seemed like an exercise in harmonic beautification. They made art 
out of everything they touched and spent endless hours in the garden out back, tending and cutting china roses and snapdragons to arrange in porcelain vases individually assigned each of the manse's fourteen rooms. They got along so famously that many racial barriers were disregarded. Although Elvita served my mother lunch on Heron China in our formal dining room, then slipped back to the brick-floored kitchen to where her sweet tea was in a mason jar and her sandwich on a paper plate. Thelonius used the screen door to the kitchen when he came in from the grounds to join his wife for lunch. Taciturn, dignified, and deferential, he was old school South and rarely spoke before spoken to. If my mother appeared in the kitchen, he leapt to his feet, hat in hand. He looked at her as though awaiting instruction. His broad shoulders squared neatly on his solid, six-foot frame, his mahogany eyes dancing askance. But I knew a side of Thelonious that belonged to the woods, a side agile and hushed, sure-footed and cautious. He was the god of the timber, the seer of the forest who knew how to keep one step ahead of danger. Thelonious never went down to the pond or into the woods without taking his 12-gauge shotgun. Little T and I trailed after him through the menagerie of broom sedge and ryegrass, charged with the task of spotting water moccasins camouflaged near the water's edge. We followed Thelonious through the trees to look for the possums and raccoons who had a nightly habit of tearing up my mother's vegetable garden. We followed deer trails and studied tree trunks for evidence of clawed feet scratching, and neither of us considered the hunt for the kill as anything out of step with the rhythm of nature or suggestive of man's supremacy. We were students of Thelonius's Arcadian dominion. We delighted in these enchanted sylvan forays, shrouded in that prolific scent specific to the woods of Mississippi. That teeming, spawning, musky scent coaxed by heavy humidity and suggestive of something carnal and beastly. We avoided the spiky balls of the sweet gum tree and scrounged for the brown hard-shell fruit of the deciduous buckeye to add to our growing collection. Little T and I kept our buckeyes like treasure, piled in a wicker basket on the veranda beside my house's eight-foot front door. On Saturday afternoons, we painted them in vibrant colors from the art supply kit my brother Hayward gave me one Christmas. Hayward liked to encourage me in the pursuit of developing myself in life, and his magnanimity extended to Little T. Hey, Little T, Hayward called as she and I sat cross-legged on the north side of the veranda. I bet I can beat you to the mailbox and back. It was a Saturday afternoon in early June, and we'd spread the church section of the Como Penolian beneath us and positioned ourselves beneath one of the pair of box windows gracing either side of the front door. The front door was fully open, but its screen was latched to keep the bugs from funneling into the entrance hall. They'd be born from the current of the veranda ceiling fans that stirred a humidity so pervasive and wilting there was no escaping until the weather cooled in early November. The glass pitcher of sweet tea Elvita gave us sat opaque and sweating, reducing crescents of ice to weak, bobbing smiles around a flaccid slice of lemon. Little T stood to her full height at Hayward's challenge, her hand on her hip, 
Her oval eyes narrowed. Go on with yourself, she said to Hayward, which was Little T's standard way of dismissal. I bet I can, Hayward pressed, standing alongside Rufus, his two-year-old red-bone coonhound who shadowed him everywhere. Little T took a mighty step forward. And you best get that dog out of here, for he upends this here paint. Miss Shirley gonna be pitching a fit you get paint on her veranda. Then come race me, Hayward persisted. Rufus will follow me down the driveway. You just don't want to race because I beat you the last time. You beat me because you a cheat, Little T snapped. She's right, Hayward, I said. You took off first. I saw you. It's not my fault she's slow on the trigger, Hayward responded. Little T hesitated. I just took the advantage. I'll be taking advantage now, she stated, walking down the four brick steps to where Hayward and Rufus stood. At ten years old, little T was taller than me and almost as tall as Hayward. She had long, wire-thin limbs whose elegance belied their dependable strength, and a way of walking from an exaggerated lift of her knees that never disturbed her steady carriage. She was regal at every well-defined angle, with shoulders spanning twice the width of her tapered waist, and a swan neck that pronounced her determined jaw. Smiling, Hayward bounced on the balls of his feet, every inch of his lithe body coiled and ready to spring. There was no refusing Hayward's smile, and he knew it. It was a thousand-watt pirate smile whose influence could create a domino effect through a crowd. I'd seen Hayward's smile buckle the most resistant of moods. There was no turning away from its white-toothed, winsome source. When my brother smiled, he issued an invitation to the world to get the joke. Typically, the whole world would. Celia, run fetch us a stick, Little T directed, her feet scratching on the gravel driveway as she marched to the dusty quarter-mile stretch from our house to the mailbox on Old Panola Road. I sprang from the veranda to the grass on the other side of the driveway and broke a long, sturdy twig from an oak branch. Set it right here, Little T pointed, and I placed it horizontally before her. But Rufus rushed upon the stick and brought it straight to Hayward, who rubbed his russet head and praised, Good boy! Even that dog of yours a cheat, Little T said. But she, too, rubbed his head, then replaced the stick on the ground. Now come stand behind here. Celia's going to give us a fair shake. We'll run when she says run. Her hands went to her hips. Now, what you going to give me when I win? The reward of pride and satisfaction, Hayward said. And just then, the screen door on the veranda flew wide, and my brother John came sauntering out. On go, I called from my position on the side of the driveway, where I hawkishly monitored the stick to catch a foot creeping forward. Looking from Hayward to Little T to make sure I had their attention, I used a steady cadence announcing, Ready, set, go. Off the pair flew, dust scattering, arms flailing, off in airborne flight, side by side, until Little T broke loose and left Hayward paces behind. 
I could see their progression until the bend in the driveway obstructed my vision, but had little doubt about what was happening. Little T was an anomaly in Como, Mississippi. She was the undisputed champion in our age group of the region's track and field competition, and was considered by everyone an athlete to watch. Which is why Hayward continuously challenged her to practice. Presently, I saw the two walking toward me. Hayward had his arm around little T's shoulder, and I could see her head poised, listening as he chattered with vivid animation. You definitely practice the art of, and probably are just naturally gifted with this sort of lyricism in your writing. There's something that you write in the very beginning, and it has to do with these three friends, these three separate parts, um, needing each other, being like pieces of a clock. You know what I'm talking about. I do. Yeah, thank you. The three friendships were um, like pieces of a clock and that separately they were in, in co-it and in need of each other. And yet together they, they operated in perfect time. That's such a beautiful analogy for friendship, I think. I think there's something about these three friends that are very, they're like different parts of all women's personalities. You know, I think you capture one is a little stronger, one's a little uh, wispier. Um, and don't we all have friends like that? Yes. I think that I know exactly what you're saying. And this is such a great conversation um, because I think with friendships, um, we don't know who we are really until we are up against those people that give us cause to express who we are. And Mm. I think that's the beauty of friendship is it gives us forum and it's like a sounding board. Sometimes we don't know what we think until we hear ourselves say it. And so, you know, what is the arena for that? It's when you're bantering, discussing amongst friends, something that that may be sensitive or deep or personal. And, you know, with our feelings, when we are given the latitude to be able to express them, it lays them out so that we can, we can take a look at them and say, yes, this is how I feel. But to speak to the, the three friends, Um, you have hit the nail right on the head. And my intention was to keep it well-rounded that I like the idea of take three women and give them one dilemma, one one problem to solve. And you will get three different vantage points that Mm -hmm. if I did that and I, and I balanced it, I could show the reader. Okay. Well, well, this is the extreme to the right. And this is the extreme to the left. And I am the narrator and I'm in the middle of it. And because I'm writing in the first person, I'm going to tell the reader how this narrator sees everything. And so I knew that if I kept it in the extremes and identified who these three women were and didn't vary from that, never wavered from it, I knew that I could give the reader an experience, which is always my aim, for them to say, uh, What's my take on this? And that also, to me, that gets to what I think is one of the main themes of the book is that the past is is always with us, that our past is part of who we are. Yes. And that's that's one of the great things about these friendships is that they understand each other's pasts. Um, But but also that we 
we are, um, the version we are today is built on or has an undercurrent of everything that came before. Right. And, and I think the question becomes, and, and this is, you know, with maturity is this grappling with how do we manage it? Because there's no undoing the past. It's done. It's happened. It's gone. And so the, the next question becomes, how are we to manage this in a way that we can live with it? Because I think human beings and the human heart and the human psyche is delicate business. I think these are age old questions, nothing new under the sun. Yes, I think that with anything and everything that I ever write, um, and I have, I have four novels, one novella in the world, and I have just completed a fifth manuscript. And again, and again, and again, thematically, I guess I'm fascinated in the subject of this because I, I seem to you know, not be able to leave it alone. Mm. And, and, and again, I'm one of these writers that never has a plan. I never have a plan when I write a novel. I admire those that do. I'm, I am not one of them. But um, it, it's always coming out thematically, reconciling the past, healing the heart. So, so let's talk about, you know, writer to reader. And in my case, I say kind of friend to friend. Because to, to me, writing and certainly sharing it is an incredibly personal and intimate experience. Hmm. I treat it as if while I'm writing that, you know, I'm talking to somebody in, 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 in an even exchange. And this is my, this is my take on it. This is my side of it. And, and I hope the reader is saying, well, well, this is how I feel about it. It's yeah. the entire reason why I write. Yeah. This book is full of very complex relationships um, within the family and within the friendships in our flashback part of the story in the eighties the hierarchy of the family and the family relationships are uh, sometimes really difficult, I think, without revealing too much about sort of the, the family tragedy that you, that you unspool in this story. Can you talk a little bit about where some of that inspiration comes from, where you find these characters and the complexity of them? The, the father in Little T is a misunderstood man because he is an artist by temperament and talent, you know, and nature born into the Wakefield plantation. And his father was like a big daddy kind of domineering, big booming voice, thick in stature, big solid presence. The kind of man that took the air from the room when he walked in it. So imagine having a father like that and you're an artist and you're the only son. And the father says, by the way, here's what you're going to do with your life. Inherit hundreds of acres of land and a working plantation. And you're going to be responsible for all of it. And, and, and so you can't, you can't get out of that arrangement. And so what is that going to create? Well, that's going to create some kind of imbalance of the mm-hmm. soul. And that's going to create uh, a little dis-ease uh, with the relationship between your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, and your implacable reality. So yeah. there's going to be a conflict there. What leads him to be the person he is to his children is influenced by so many other things in his past. Again, our past is an undercurrent. Our past is always with us. I think that's a great theme in this book. Right. And, and also one of my favorite things is, and 
I can be rather sardonic in my sense of humor, but I mean well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I always want to know what are you really hiding? What are you hiding? I'm fascinated in that. I'm convinced everybody's hiding something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets me to something that's also on your website. Um, you you said that your mother said as you were growing up that you were an observer, um, always a people watcher. And I think what you just said about, you know, I just always think people are hiding something. There's something there under the surface. And that inherent being an observer or people watcher definitely informs storytelling, don't you think? I think it does. And and I think a, it's an intuitive process. And it, and it it might just explain, I never really thought about it, but it might explain why I rarely go into anything with an outline because it is an intuitive process. Uh, there's a, there's an energy to it all. There's a flow to creation. And I think writing is, you know, artistic, it's an art, but it's also a creation. And yeah, I, I, I think it, it's my business to, you know, allow myself to create it. So I wanted to know for you, what would you say are things that you desire as essential? Room to room. I'm a great walker. Mm. And I, I've been that way since I was two. <laughs> and I like to, you know, move through space, through a region. I feel that way about every place I've ever lived. I really felt that way about Ireland, that the, the best way to get a sense of a place is to move through it on foot and experience it and pay attention to what your impressions are. I like room to roam and freedom to, you know, think and consider and muse and ponder, you know, so I'm one of these people, I need a lot of space around me. And I think that that is really the key. If you were to say, all right, Claire, what is the entire key to your well-being? What is your well-being contingent upon? Which is, I think, what you were saying. And I would say, yeah, I need to have room to roam and I need everybody to leave me alone. <laughs> everybody leave me alone. I'm, I'm going out for a walk. That tends to, to keep me in line. I'll put a link to Claire's website in the show notes. And I'll share a little more than little tea, a bonus, a part of our conversation where we talked about her deep ancestral connection to and understanding of Ireland. I'll put that on the Desideratum podcast website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>